You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hello everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop in a very special series of episodes. All week long, I will be diving into a ton of movie references in K-pop songs and music videos. Movies that have inspired K-pop stars or are rumored to have inspired them. All things the K-pop cinema connection. Without further ado, let's dive right into it. A listener note for today's episode. Some of the titles I am talking about are quite graphic. There will be a few mentions of exceptionally heinous violence, gore. I will do my best to limit those, but did want to give you a heads up. This is a PG-13 episode. We're going to talk about The Mummy. The original is from 1932, but I find the 2017 awful reboot much more worth covering the plot of and scoffing at. It actually was so bad, I'm not just saying that, it was so bad that this whole Universal Studios cinematic universe they wanted to create, kind of like the Marvelverse but for Universal Studios, that whole universe idea was dropped after this movie was just viewed as super derivative and blah. But now you don't have to see it because I'll just summarize it for you. This is an action-adventure movie from 2017 that takes place in London. The workers find this tomb buried with a ruby in it. The sarcophagus ends up getting flown back to Britain, and to everyone's shock, once it's flown there, the mummy, Amonet, comes back to life, and somehow is able to possess this guy Chris through a spider bite. A spider, notable detail, Dreamcatcher music video parallel there. This plane ride, this girl Jenny is the only survivor, she gets a parachute, no one else did. Chris warns this guy Nick that Amonet plans to use his body next. Amonet starts getting stronger because she's feeding on more people while she's out and about, turning them into zombies, basically. She gets the dagger she needs, but not the ruby to complete it. A team of soldiers, led by Dr. Jekyll, who, yes, turns into a character named Hyde later, this team he leads eventually catch and subdue Amonet. They also reveal Jenny has been working for this secret society called Prodigium that tries to get rid of any supernatural threats to the area. Nick and Jenny then try to escape during this whole episode where she's subdued and stuff, but Amonet finds them anyway, and summons this newly formed zombie army of hers to help her. And for good measure, she throws in a good sandstorm. So it's chaos, and she gets the ruby during the ensuing chaos, then catches Jenny and drowns her. Nick is about to destroy this dagger, but Amonet reminds him that if he destroys this magic dagger, he will also destroy its power, which includes the power to bring people back to life. And Jenny just died. He ends up just stabbing himself, and he is able to somehow use the power to take the life out of Amina again, seal her back in the tomb, and Nick is now this superpowered guy. The superpower is like within him now, within his soul. He's also now able then to bring people back to life, brings Chris back, and they set off for who knows what next grand adventure. Fun fact. There was actually a soundtrack written and recorded for this remake of The Mummy that ended up being longer than the actual movie. The direct nod in a Dreamcatcher video 
is in odd eye when Sua wears the paint and is surrounded by the same streak of light as the mummy is during the movie. Dreamcatcher was also clearly influenced by some of the imagery in The Shining. As well as tons of other Stephen King works, I argue, the influences seem pretty sharp to me. Check out my A Guide to Dreamcatcher episode of this podcast for more on that. They're definitely part of the Stephen King universe. Just some of the many scenes in Dreamcatcher videos that remind me of The Shining. There's the hotel hallway, the hotel setting, supernatural forces thriving there. The Shining in the movie is this psychic ability to see what the haunted past of the hotel was all about in the first place. Jack in the movie tries to bust down a door with an axe, similar to the door busting of the main guy in videos like Chase Me, and Jack does try to chase his son, who busted down the door with the axe. Jack ends up freezing to death. Loose connection, I know, but it made me think of In the Frozen, a Dreamcatcher B-side. In this photo hanging in the hotel now features Jack in a party setting, which made me think about Dreamcatcher with the pictures on the walls of them in, like, old-timey hangout sessions like get-togethers from ages ago. There also seems to be a very loose but present influence of the movie It in Dreamcatcher's videos. The fact that they stick together and can basically seem to communicate so much without saying a thing, that telepathy power, the friends in It, that's kind of their superpower, is the way they communicate and can share dreams. You know, if you get rid of all the creepy clown aspects of it, it is kind of a cute story. At the end of the day, it's about four friends who defend someone against bullies. As a result, good karma comes, and they end up catching these powers, like they were contagious, and now they're all superhuman. TXT also referenced it in a scene from it, that scene where there's the cast, the white arm cast that says loser on it, but the S is covered over with a V in red marker, so it says lover instead. That's a direct reference to a scene in It. And given that theme of friendship and making each other stronger together, it makes sense why TXT would take inspiration from It. Okay, I know I said that this was all about K-pop, but I do want to take a C-pop detour to talk a bit about the tag-along. A Taiwanese horror film from 2015. You just gotta watch this, the movie Angel and Sai's music video for Lady in Red. She talks about the power of red to represent everything from evil spirits to love, blood, everything. The imagery is reminiscent of actually many horror films, many horror elements of films. In the teaser videos before the Lady in Red video came out, there were pictures of things like a headless corpse, blood spilled over, red cloth, a fable about a woodcutter, an excerpt from that made me think of Little Red Riding Hood, an axe, a matrix of characters, a headline about a murder trial, then a wedding invite. The video itself follows this kind of revenge plot when she catches her sister kissing her fiancé, sticks to her sister's side, and kills the fiancé with the guillotine at the end of the video. It's very cinematic also because it's, it's really striking the, the red blood against snow and stuff. Just the use of color as well as Jola's acting and the way she acts so evil villain-ish. She just really transforms into the role. She melts into the role. Which I talked about on a different episode called Joel and Size Galaxy. Kill Bill is the story recreated in part in Brown Eyed Girl's mini-movie of a music video called Kill Bill. It was also a character an AOA member dressed as in the Get Out music video. It's one of Quentin Tarantino's from 2003. It's a martial arts slash revenge fantasy movie. 
Basically, this team of assassins, led by a guy named Bill, is trying to murder this person who goes by the bride. And they tried to murder her and her unborn child at a wedding chapel. So she's wanted to get revenge ever since they did that. By this crew called the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. The bride and Vernita Green, her code name is Copperhead, they're both former members of this Deadly Viper group. Copperhead, who now lives under an alias, she now lives a, a quote-unquote normal suburban life, pretty tame, really kind of emphasized in this striking scene where her young daughter walks into the room, comes home from school during an intense fight. So during this violent fight, it's just interrupted by someone who's home from school. One of the deadly vipers, who is in a relationship with Bill and is acting on his orders, considers killing Bride when she's in the hospital via lethal injection. That's one of the scenes pretty overtly recreated in the Brown Eyed Girls video. This movie actually has a deleted scene too, where Elle Driver also blows up Bride's car. She actually didn't end up going through with the lethal injection. Her conscience, I guess, kicked in last second. And despite this near-attempted murder, Bride decides to make her first target someone else. The leader of the Yakuza, O-Ren. O-Ren and Bride actually used to be close friends when they were both deadly vipers. Bill's codename is Snake Charmer, and Elle's is Mountain Snake. There's a love connection. Here's an unlikely but interesting possibility. Maybe the fact so many K-pop videos have the big cereal box wall is because it's a nod to this movie. You never know, because Copperhead turns on Bride and tries to shoot her with a pistol she hides in a cereal box. Bride ends up killing Copperhead first, actually, a killing that this girl, Nikki, watches. And the Bride tells Nikki, don't worry, you can avenge her death someday. Reach out to me, I can train you when you're a bit older. The Bride is in a four-year coma. It's a long story. <laughs> but she travels to Okinawa to get a sword from this famous swordsmith who made a specialty sword for her after finding out who her target is, a former student of his. So if you think your teacher despises you, you've got nothing on this guy. So she's equipped with a deadly sword and tracks Oren to this restaurant in Tokyo. It gets really gory. She cuts off an assistant's arm. She kills the bodyguard. There's this duel. This is kind of two parts. Part one of Kill Bill ends with Bill finding Sophie, the assistant who just had her arm chopped off. And he's asking her, does Bride know her daughter is alive? And that's where part one ends. This was actually viewed as plagiarism. Some accused of that because it's quite similar in a lot of ways to Lady Snowblood, a Japanese movie from 1973. Plus, before that, there was The Bride Wore Black, a 1968 movie from France. In the Brown-Eyed Girls video for Kill Bill, they each play a different member of the Deadly Viper assassination crew. The video even starts with a quote from the movie, and they keep saying about, I did something bad, don't you want to kill me? Who's worse, you or me? which sums up how the whole movie basically goes, where they all turn on each other and want to kill each other. In some aesthetic and editorial choices that make sense for music videos too, to enhance the storytelling, the Kill Bill movie incorporates a truckload of pop culture references, an anime sequence, a messed up order chronologically, special effects that invoke the feel of 70s Chinese cinema, pays particular tribute to the martial arts movies of the Shaw Brothers studios. Plus the bride's tracksuit and helmet, meant to allude to what Bruce Lee wore in the movie Game of Death from 1972. 
People also read into slash praise slash critique the fact that Oren kills her boss after he makes sexist and racist comments. That's her revenge killing. One more fun fact about this. The bride as a character was actually come up with during the making of Pulp Fiction, a different Tarantino film that we're going to talk about next. Pulp Fiction is one of the most truly famous movies ever, I would say. It's a black comedy from 1994 that's credited with really irreversibly boosting the popularity of indie films. It's nodded to in When We Disco by Sunmi and J.Y. Park, as well as Twice's What Is Love video. Pulp Fiction is named after pulp magazines, graphic, gory stuff that was popular at the time. And once again, Tarantino throws a truckload of pop culture references at you. And in another example of a classic Tarantino move, the story is not chronological. Although the action does start and end in a diner. So if you see a diner setting in certain K-pop videos that are action-packed, and you want to really get your tinfoil hat-wearing theory brain on, you could say it's a nod to Pulp Fiction. You could also look for in videos a gold watch. That could mean something. It's also interesting that one of the many installments this story is broken into is called The Bonnie Situation. Made me think of Bonnie and Clyde we talked about the other day on the show. It starts with these guys, Jules and Vincent. Jules and Vincent go to this apartment to retrieve a briefcase. They end up getting the briefcase, but killing the guy that gave it to them and that guy's assistant. They bring the money to their boss, who uses it to bribe this other guy to tank a match. The boss's wife ends up overdosing, getting revived with a shot of adrenaline. The guy who got the money, Butch, to tank his match actually bets on himself instead, but overdoes it and ends up killing his opponent in the match. Really quite a story here. He's ready to flee with his girlfriend, but she forgot a precious gold watch, so before they can flee the area, she has to go back and get it. And that's when he hears a flush and realizes someone is in the room. It's Vincent, who is killed by Butch as he exits the bathroom. Marcellus tries to shoot Butch, chases him into a pawn shop. The pawn shop owner holds them both at gunpoint, takes them to a basement, blinds and gags them. More stuff happens I don't want to even say out loud, but they are prisoners, essentially. More killing, more deaths. Then we get back to the diner scene, where Vincent is in the bathroom when a couple shows up and takes the restaurant hostage and demands the briefcase. There is so much to unpack here. First of all, the briefcase, which in the end is left with Jules and Vincent, who started the story trying to get it. Mission accomplished with enormous speed bumps along the way. You happy now? And we assume it's full of money, but we never actually know what's in the briefcase. There is cash involved that exchanges hands, but it's not actually specified that the cash they're after and the briefcase they're after are the same thing. The meaning of the bright orange light that comes out of the case every time it's opened also made to be up to interpretation, as is the lock on the briefcase, which is 666. Then there actually is deeper meaning in how going to the bathroom happens a lot when big plot points are about to happen, when stuff's about to go down. It shows how much change happens in an instant. The second you stop keeping your guard up, you never know how your world will change by the time you're out of there. Plus, it's a good way to make a metaphor out of surety situations, which is what a movie called Pulp Fiction is supposed to be, kind of calling out this stuff as horse shirt. 
Even mid-standoff, one of the people holding the restaurant hostage, who goes by Honey Bunny, yells out, I gotta go pee. So it's a recurring theme in here. Then there's also meaning you could take out of this girl Trudy, who sits back and smokes during the overdose scene. The overdose reversal scene. Just passive presence there, meant to add humor and some lightness to the situation, but also show how if you're one of the people who is constantly alert and ready for the next weird thing life throws at you, that's not the same thing as caring. That's a whole other thing. Right before executing someone, Jules always reads Ezekiel 2517, and each time changes it up a little bit. Part of it, he says in round one of saying it, is, quote, And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Later, it changes to pretty much identical, but the last line changes to, And you will know not my name is the Lord, but I am the Lord. And instead of saying, when I lay my vengeance upon thee, they say, upon you. In the last version, instead of saying, strike down with great vengeance in furious anger, he says he will execute great vengeance in furious rebukes. And then he says, when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. So there are more details like that that you could read into. And that ambiguity is part of the appeal of music videos as well, leaving a lot up to interpretation. Next, we're going to talk about a really gross and weird story, American Beauty. It's a drama and kind of a black comedy from 1999 about an awful dude who falls in love with his teenage daughter's best friend. This middle-aged dude who is married falls for her. He's Lester, he's married to Carolyn, and Jane is their 16-year-old daughter who hates them both. She's also a cheerleader, despite her being pretty pessimistic, and clearly getting that from her dad. Lester's neighbors include Colonel Fitz, his wife Barbara, and their son Ricky, who ends up getting with Jane. He's also basically a drug dealer. He secretly sneaks in sales during his catering gigs. After seeing Jane perform at a halftime performance, Lester is captivated by her friend, also part of the cheerleading squad, Angela. He daydreams about her, always with red rose petals surrounding her. And actually, in the movie Madagascar, you know when Alex the lion starts to hallucinate and see stakes all around him, and then basically does the equivalent of a snow angel in stakes? That's Madagascar spoofing on American Beauty, which does that kind of thing with rose petals. Carolyn starts having an affair with another married person, Buddy Kane. Jane and Ricky are dating now. They really connect over a plastic bag drifting through the wind. I kid you not. I don't know if Katy Perry found the firework lyric from American Beauty, but it's pretty much taken right out of the plot because there's this pivotal scene where Ricky feels like a plastic bag drifting through the wind. And he comments about how beautiful it is, how it made him stop and stare and think about the world at a very deep level. He just had this epiphany staring at a plastic bag about beauty and everything around us. He's suddenly seeing the world as an artist and in a new light, I guess now that he's in love. Lester, who has been distancing himself from Carolyn anyway, pining after Angela instead, pretty unfazed about Carolyn's affair. But Buddy Kane decides to put an end to it anyway, because he's worried about wanting to settle down with other people too, or no one, but to, he wants to pursue other people, and he worries about expensive divorce proceedings, and he just says, you know, it's too complicated. 
Lester and Ricky are together in a scene. Their interactions with each other make Colonel Frank, the super homophobic jerk, think that they are intimate and so he yells at his son. Ricky actually really wants to get out of that house, so he thinks maybe this is my chance. So instead of saying no, that's not all why we're in the same room, calm down, he actually goes along with it and embellishes it. He says, that's right, I'm with Frank and I'm helping him be pimped out to others. He hopes that will be enough to kick him out of the house, be free of Frank, and run away to New York with Jane. Unexpectedly, Frank just gets emotional and hugs and kisses Lester. Lester and Angela actually do seem to connect. It's not just one-sided. They really are bonding and opening up to each other more and more. Then there is a super famous scene where Lester stands in the kitchen, looks at a family portrait, and just kind of stands there satisfied. Like, this is what I was waiting for. This is the feeling I wanted of fulfillment. This is what I really wanted in life to be happy. Then he's shot in the back of the head, and Ricky and Jane find Lester's dead body. His final words were this monologue about how life was so beautiful, his life was so beautiful, he saw beauty in everything all around him. Actually, some scrapped scenes from this movie featured Ricky and Jane being prosecuted for the murder of Lester after Frank framed them for it. That whole subplot got thrown out. One scene had to be cut short due to time constraints. The director was like, fine, but only if we make sure this line stays in there. When Ricky sees a homeless person, he says, quote, It's like God is looking right at you, just for a second. And if you're careful, you can look right back. And what do you see? Beauty. So much to unpack here. First of all, the whole creepy plot where this middle-aged dude wants to be with Angela. At the end of the day, he is killed, and he doesn't get that. So did he get his comeuppance? It's really weird. Film scholars have a bunch of different takes on this story, and I will link to a lot of them on my site as always. But it seems like the consensus is that a lot of this movie is satire, a twisted tale of the American dream, the classic white picket fence, middle-class materialist families, feeling like life is great but also unfulfilled. They want to see beauty everywhere, and they don't. They see monotony, confinement to certain rules, and they want to just resist the status quo. That rebelliousness is turned into a gross form, so that's where critics really will differ about how much is being too nice to the interpretation of this movie. But ultimately, it seems to be about a lack of satisfaction, despite achieving this American dream. Some critics also point out that, rather than, like, making viewers feel steamy passion or something, instead there are very long, static camera shots. Really awkward camera filming that slows down time as you watch it. So you're cringing as you watch it. Plus, it's just cringe in some ways because you got the rose petal, snow angel, and whatever. So it's meant to make you uncomfortable. It's also an uncomfortable watch because a lot takes place in confined spaces. Lots of scenes in confined spaces. And they also use this technique, which I will link to a music theorist's discussion about on my site, called vertical time. Quote, a single present stretched out into an enormous duration, a potentially infinite now, that nonetheless feels like an instant. So it's very weird, unflinching look at America is what some people interpret it to mean. You could also just take a whole separate route and focus on interpreting more of the, the quotes about beauty, finding beauty in plastic bags, homeless people, things that society has told you to be shaming or embarrassed about seeing in public. 
you know, put that plastic bag away, don't litter, or help the homeless people, or, you know, it just, it feels like, to me, a commentary on seeing beauty intentionally and purposely. Purposefully, intentionally labeling as beautiful what others label as the opposite in society. This movie also really uses color, especially red, to tell the story, and red roses. But red, actually, throughout the movie, represents good stuff to these characters. Romance, but also individuality and stuff like that. By the end, it just represents that blood stain after he's shot. Which, by the way, it's never officially confirmed who killed Lester. It's assumed to be Frank, and actually Frank is seen entering his house with gloves later that night. But it's left to the viewer to decide what happened. Maybe it was Angela, who knows? So the bloodstains are what the color red turns into representing, which is especially kind of symbolic to see him standing in the kitchen by the family portrait now covered in blood. Davida has a song and music video called Eat Your Heart Out Buddy Kane. Remember, Buddy Kane is the one who was having an affair. In that song, she talks about, you thought I was bulletproof, your best friend's all up in our business, all kind of alluding to the story of American beauty. And then there's, of course, the fact red flower petals rain down on Davida as she lies in this bedroom. And the second they hit her white dress, they turn into bloodstains instead of just falling off and staying petals. So that dual representation of the color red is a big part of Davida's video, as is the fact that she, she's walking down the street in her prom dress, lining the road with a trail of red roses. And she ends up walking to her prom and performing the song in her school gymnasium, which to me reminded me of the halftime show at school that started this whole cringy saga. Hash Swan also has a song called American Beauty, which has some pretty obvious tie-ins here, with lyrics like the withered flower, I need it again so I cut it, but the roses in the rose garden aren't beautiful, even the thorns lie, the petals still don't smell, I'm still walking on a road that's just red. What have I done? It's just like the thorns. It's just a scar. What have I done? What have I done? They're just American beauty. You know what has to come after American beauty, right? American Psycho. One of Monsta X's love killer music video influences. It's a black comedy and kind of horror from 2000. It's about this investment banker who's secretly a serial killer targeting the homeless and other vulnerable people. It did have a sequel, which I'm probably supposed to act like doesn't exist because it went straight to DVD. No one talked about it. It's kind of not super relevant anyway. This one, I think, the symbolism and deeper meaning will be pretty clear on its face. This main character, Patrick, is a banker who is surrounded by a bunch of shallow, materialistic elites. He's a really unhappy person, unsatisfied with his life has really silly, frivolous, small-talk, unfulfilling conversations over dinner with these wealthy, boring people, and he's always kind of keeping up appearances. He doesn't really have passion for anything. When he gets mad, he gets really mad. For example, after seeing that a colleague's business card looked better than his, he killed a dog and a homeless person in a fit of rage. He also ends up killing Alan, a colleague he's long held a grudge over for Alan getting into these exclusive restaurants and him being unable to book a reservation. He's extra mad when Alan mistakes him for a different co-worker. What bothers him most is being forgotten slash mistaken for someone else. What he does with Alan and some of his other victims, he lectures them about his favorite music, then kills them after the lecture. He tries to strangle a different co-worker after seeing his business cards that look better than his. 
he's about to shoot this cat, but then ends up shooting the woman who shows up and scolds him for wanting to shoot the cat. He then shoots the cops who come on the scene. He then shoots the security guard that shows up. He just keeps shooting who's in his path that could otherwise rat him out. He frantically leaves this message on someone's answering machine, confessing, saying, I just killed like 20 to 40 people. Later, when he asks about that message, the guy laughs it off. He didn't take it seriously. He thought it was either a joke or someone messaging the wrong person. Plus, in the first place, he assumed and mistook this guy for another coworker. We don't even know if he's talking about the same message on his answering machine. For all the audience knows, he may have never even heard the confession message. It ends as it began, a dinner with friends discussing their reservations and other weird trivial stuff. The movie ends with him saying, this confession has meant nothing. Actual words, this confession has meant nothing. And he gripes about never getting caught, no matter how reckless he got intentionally. A couple of things really caught my attention with this story. One is that he's starved for attention, and he simultaneously is all about putting on airs, keeping up appearances, to be in the in crowd. And he has this intense desire to be his own person. And he wants to be infamous because it's better than being forgotten. Similar theme to the Bonnie and Clyde story we talked about the other day on the show. It's also worth noting that he misattributes a quote to Ed Gein, another serial killer. It's really awful, and I don't want to repeat the quote, but it is interesting that he does that misattribution. So when he's trying to be his own person, he's actually just following in the footsteps of other people. That's my read on the story. But again, as always, I will link to a bunch of different film scholars' opinions on this on my site. This seems to be a movie, one of those where it's really crossing the line. They say it's all satirical, but still some people say you can't just brush this off as satire. It was actually originally NC-17, but after cutting just 18 seconds out of it, it got down to an R rating. A lot of misogyny in this movie, lots of other stuff that just, again, brings into question the nature of satire. Some people also just didn't like the movie because the book is more ambiguous about the character in his many facets. The connection here to Monster X's love killer, one to me seems to be the increasingly brazen antics they get up to, just more and more intense. And two, maybe it's a nod to American Psycho when Minghyuk pours that red paint all over that room that's kind of gray, dreary, plastic covered everything, monotonous. He just stains it all with red paint that looks kind of like blood. He's making a scene, drawing attention to himself. I'm not just extrapolating here. Monster X did overtly cite American Psycho as a source of inspiration. They actually said that each member plays a different movie villain in the video for Love Killer. Fiona One's character seems to be nodding to Fight Club, a movie we will not be talking about actually throughout this series of episodes because I'm going to follow the number one rule of Fight Club. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will see you all next time for more movie talk. Bye, everyone.